Good afternoon and welcome. I'm Brian McGuire and welcome to this Euroactive debate supported by the Institute for European Energy and Climate Policy. Our topic today is how to achieve a socially just EU renovation. We have our hashtag today, EA Debates, and send your questions on Slido. We're going to take questions throughout the course of the conversation, so you don't need to wait until the end for any particular Q&A. And send those questions in now. We'll bring those uh, to the panel a little bit uh, later on as well. We have a studio audience uh, here with us and we have you uh, online as well well. And uh, today we're talking about renovating both public and private buildings. And it's been singled out in the European Green Deal as a key initiative to drive energy efficiency in the sector. To pursue this dual ambition of energy gains and economic growth, in 2020, the Commission published a strategy, a renovation way for Europe, greening our buildings, creating jobs, improving lives. And this strategy comes uh, when the EU is facing several challenges. Firstly, the climate emergency. Uh, buildings currently make up 30 of the EU's energy-related greenhouse gas emissions. Then there's a social crisis. Energy poverty is on the rise all across Europe. Then Europe has been plunged into the energy security crisis as well because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And a recently published study by the Institute of uh, European Energy and Climate Policy claims that if well-designed, the EU renovation wave has the potential to cut low-income households' energy costs by a third and increase their disposable income uh, with home renovation and a switch to clean heating. To outline this study, before we go to the policy discussion with our panelists, we have with us uh, Vlasis Economo, uh, Managing Director and Senior Researcher at the Institute uh, for Energy, European Energy and Climate Policy. Vlasis, great to have you with us. The floor is all yours. Thank you very much. And I think this discussion today is quite timely, given the heated debate we do face in the EU bodies on uh, on the renovation wave, the Fit for 55 legislation, and of course the things um, that happen around us in the war and the energy price hikes. Uh, I will briefly discuss uh, the, um, today the, the study, what we have seen so far. So um, primarily in... Um, if we could go to the, yeah, if we go to the next slide, the title of, uh, of the study is a study commission for the European Climate Foundation, and it has been uh, debated a lot with several EU stakeholders. Uh, so we have gone through a lot of in-detail work with a lot of EU stakeholders, and would like to thank them personally for that, and also a lot of work in the ten member states. Poland, Czechia, Slovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, Greece, Italy, Spain, and Portugal. The choice of this country was not random, of course. The choice is that these countries, and the criteria behind this the selection of these countries, that these countries do face a very serious energy poverty issue from all the indicators of energy poverty that we might examine, and uh, they have quite different and structural characteristics in how this energy poverty uh, takes place and how it has been aggravated over the years. Uh, the, you can find, of course, the source of the study. What is the purpose? Is that we try to understand what is happening in the low-income groups. And I would like to stick a bit to this part. The low-income groups who speak about the first-income quantile. And these are the most seriously affected groups in the entire population. Why? Because these groups, first, they do not have financial access. They do not have access to financial markets. They are under the hardest split incentive problems normally, and they cannot consume less than what they are already consuming now, because they do need to cover their basic needs. Um, you can see that the percentage of the, f of the income quantile in several countries differs, but I would say in rough, it will be speak about 8 to 10% of the population in these 10 EU countries. And on the right uh, down graph, you can see the average consumption of the low income groups related to the consumption, uh, the average consumption of the normal uh, income. So we speak about the first income quantiles. And as you see indeed, that the, what they consume is less 
and they cannot sometimes go more because they um, have normally they live in smaller also houses also they do duration energy use to cover their other needs but also we see that they consume sometimes even more uh, energy to fulfill their basic needs related to the other groups the reason is of course because they live in low poor insulated poorly insulated houses they have low income and they suffer the high energy price. These are the three constituents of the energy poverty because it's not just an energy price problem. In the next slide now, uh, yeah, we can see that indeed the, this part is not just a point of energy prices. I mean, the discussion so far is going a lot on the energy prices and the effect of the energy prices. Yes, this is a main problem, but it's not the only one. The problem of uh, the low-income groups and the energy poverty in general is uh, structural issues. There are several uh, indicators that we can start and thinking of, and that's what we did in this study, to understand exactly how things are being uh, spread around these 10 countries. Primarily, you can even check the insulation levels, that a lot of the member states, a lot of these 10 countries fall way below the average EU insulation levels. So it means that these specific households, uh, these specific, yeah, the households that these specific uh, uh, low-income groups live do not have at all insulated houses or very poorly insulated houses. Then, um, we can also see other points about how easy it is for them to access to the grid or how easy it is for them to change suppliers because we assume that this is something that happens automatically, but it's not the case. Um, we see that there is a lack of access actually to energy supply alternatives, both in infrastructural terms, about for instance in gas or other means, but also on market opening. So it's not the market is not so open for all of them to change. And um, then we have also, uh, from the social security perspective, that there is a poor coverage of social protection system for, um, for housing and for, the, for other energy expenditures. And uh, there is a slow improvement in energy poverty indicators, but I would still say that there, is there are not enough studies yet for the low-income groups, and here is for sure more research is warranted to understand exactly all the behavior and why these groups are being more affected. Let's go to the next slide where we are going to see the policies that we examined in the study, mainly these are the three difficult policies that are being debated now. The first is the ETS2 for buildings, where we're going to hear interesting interventions afterwards, of course, and find the legislative process. The phasing out of the fossil fuel boilers and the minimum energy performance standards. All these fall, of course, under the Fit for 55 proposals and the other piece of legislation. And what we did is that we tried to understand how all these policies would affect the low-income groups if they are being implemented separately but also in combinations and uh, how this will bridge into the existing social protection network that the member states do have or don't have sometimes as you can see in the graph that uh, if we take the eu which is the far right bullet on the blue on uh, housing expenditure and social exclusion expenditures you can see that most of these 10 countries are quite low in their protection so the policies that are there for the social protection apparently are not enough and here is where we believe that if we have these policies in place with proper funding and proper allocation of funds and proper policy design, we can achieve the targets and have these people live better off. And then in the next part, we are going to see briefly the, the impacts that uh, these policies will have. So uh, I would say if we combine, just in a briefly way, uh, let's start. If we do nothing, so if we assume that we stick to the NECPs and member states are withdrawing from what they have promised to do, in essence what we'll get is that there will be no achievement of course of the targets and about the 19 to 20 percent households, the low-income groups, will need to spend more over the course of time of 2050. Now if we have the NTS2 only, which is practically the price signal, being an economist myself I don't trust the market on that. The reason is that we speak about the low-income groups and they cannot really take this price signal and invest. Why? 
because we said they don't have access to the financial markets. That's the first part. And they are under the hard split incentive problems. Then, uh, so in the, if we stick to, if we have only the ETS2 without the Social Climate Fund, or we will see the issues of the Social Climate Fund, then um, they will lose energy, comforts, so they will reduce, of course, their energy use, but will be with, uh, accompanied with lack of comfort. And this is for sure we don't want to have because it's a social problem. Then from the, if we have the MAPS, the minimum energy performance standards, um, we can have the reduction of the bills by 19 to 20% in the course of time of the 2050. And the MAPS and the phase out of fossil boilers, we can arrive up to about 30%. But the best is if we combine all these policies. So if we have all these policies running front-loaded in the beginning, uh, right now and nicely prepared, we can have lowest energy bills uh, and uh, highest disposable incomes uh, for, um, for the low-income groups. And then on the next part, we are going to see, of course, that uh, the financing in the next slide, we're going to see the financing of these policies. So what we did is that we checked for the 10 member states, we tried to take all the funds that would be allocated to them from the Potential Social Climate Fund, then from the RRF, from the Recovery and Resilience Facility. And here I want to put a question mark because uh, very few countries mention energy poverty as a clear target in the RRFs. And they focus generally on energy efficiency programs without allocating specific amounts already now on how much it would go to the energy poor groups. Then the modernization fund, we have very little information on the energy poverty, but uh, there is no really no priorities, it seems, at least in most member states. The revenues from the auction allowances from ETS2, we took a study from Vivid Economics. The J Just Transition Fund, especially for the Pillar 1 of the JTF, again, we don't know exactly how much of this amount would go to the energy, to the energy poor groups and the low-income groups, and of course the ERDFs and other funds. And what we see in general, in the bars, these are the costs for uh, changing boilers for investing in buildings, in energy efficiency upgrades for the low-income groups, and the dots are the financing parts in the course of time. So as we used five years intervals, uh, where we assume that these policies would take into effect, what we have is that in most countries, the amounts in the beginning do seem to be enough to cover the low-income groups, but the financing needs tend to increase over the course of time with the new policies being implemented. And there where we have a problem. And what do we say on that? that for sure, we need to front load all the investments, bring all the investments as much as possible. And how do we do it? We create the correct policy measures now. We don't wait too long for that. So we don't wait after 2035 to set up measures because the energy poor groups will keep on paying the higher bills. And we need still to keep on subsidizing these bills as being as a prominent measure so far from member states. And we lose the momentum of investing and resolving the problem structurally. So here is where I would like to stick and say that the main key outcome of the study is that we do have funds now, we need to divert them to the low-income groups, have targeted support to the low-income groups, and not wait. Because these funds are here, as you see, is only about the low-income groups. The Social Climate Fund will not go only to the low-income groups. It will reflect energy poverty to a great extent. And energy poverty means second-income quantile, not to mention in some countries third-income quantile as well. So if we take the extra cost that would be needed for the second and the third low-income quantile, these bars would be huge. And it means that the dots would not be enough anymore to cover. So that's a point that we have raised in the study. And then for the next part, uh, you can see the, um, 
in the next slide, you are going to see uh, the, the cost for 2025 and the revenues. That's exactly what we discussed now for the countries. And indeed, we have higher financing needs for the course of 2030-2040, with the MEPs being there and the other policies, and uh, of course the assumptions for the revenues planned. And that's where we would need, as we said, more and more financing in the next period. And finally, in the next uh, slide, yeah, as if we take some recommendations from our study and also from the work we've been carrying out, is that the first, the energy efficiency first principle is key for the structural solution of the problem. Why do we say that? Because now most member states take the RRFs, use a lot of RRFs for uh, natural gas, for instance, expansions, or locking in member locking in low-income low groups again to fossil fuels, and that's where we're going to have a problem. As we said, it's important to set the first. It's already very nicely written in the new Article 3 of the proposed ED, but I think now it's time to put it in reality and put it in place as a measure, as a means to resolve also the energy poverty. The second one is to shift the bill supports towards phasing out fossil boilers. Okay, we fully understand the issue that member states do spend a lot of money for financing the bills, but the bills, you know, for the low-income groups and for the general poverty uh, population. But the thing is that these bills normally go again to back financing, refinancing the same old grid, the same infrastructures, and they don't shift change. So it's gradually, it's important to set the signal that some of these subsidies should gradually go, and these on bill supports should go to the fossil, to the phasing out of the boilers. Then the price signals are not enough. As we said, it doesn't work only the ATS2, even with the Social Climate Fund for the low-income groups, because they have these structural problems. We must combine them with MEPs and structural changes on their energy, f on their stock, on their building stock. The last one, the, the third form of the final bullets, is that policies must trigger the reduction um, of thermal comfort loss, because that's what we're going to face in the end. We're going to have thermal comfort loss for these low-income groups due to their elasticity, due to their inability to pay the bills. And the, reason, the way, only way to do it is structurally through energy efficiency upgrades. Uh, energy evaluation criteria, this goes more to, of course, to the Commission's parts and the evaluations that it should not stick to energy savings now, but rather we must focus on the poverty problem itself and see how we can resolve it. So, meaning how to set the correct mechanism and show to member states that all the social welfare policies should have an energy component behind. Then, the to earmark max funding rate for low-income households. The assumptions we have made is that these households, they cannot finance even 10% or 5% sometimes of these investments. So we speak about 100% financing. That's why we have allocated these amounts as 100% financing, and it's up to member states to select and isolate the funds that they want to use for the low-income groups and put 100% uh, earmarked uh, rate for them. And then the revision of the funding streams. As we said, there are issues with timing, so if we wait too long, we will not have enough amounts due to the uh, ending of these uh, funds to cover the cost of the low-income groups. These are the key elements of the study. There is a lot of three reports, analytical, with all the calculation parts. I th uh, one thing that I must say is that this study was carried out, of course, with the 2020-20 period. Uh, so we have used the assumptions of the prices back then. We, have not, uh, we did not manage, of course, to use the current higher energy prices. That's why the savings and the benefits, also the multiple benefits, are slightly underestimated. So if we use the real prices and the real higher gas prices now, these savings would be much more, and the numbers would get okay. now. Francis, thank you so much. Let's introduce the rest of our panel now. I will start with those uh, joining us online. Uh, we have with us uh, today Kieran Cuff, Member of the European Parliament, 
There we go. Kieran, how are you? And Kieran's a member of the ITRA committee and a rapporteur for the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. He also has to leave at 5.30, so I'm going to come straight back to Kieran in just a moment before he has to go back to committee. And we also with us uh, Petros Kokalis, a member of the European Parliament uh, and member of the Envy Committee as well. And uh, Petros, is, uh, he'll stay with us until about 6 o'clock today, I think. And again, uh, committee obligations which are pressing today. Uh, shortly, we'll have with us uh, Stefan uh, Bozorowski. He's a professor at University of Manchester. He's joining us in a few minutes. Uh, beside me here as well, we have Adela Tesarova. She's the head of Unit for Consumers, uh, Local Initiatives and Just Transition at DG Energy. And uh, Guillaume Jolie, uh, he's the Sustainable Housing Officer at the Energy Team at Buick as well. So great to have you uh, all with us. Kieran, I, while I've got you uh, here at the moment, you, you heard the study of last uh, presented. You, you have your, your rapporteur on, on this report. Uh, what would you emphasize at the moment as being the critical issue? Well, I think it's really important that we have social safeguards uh, within the revisions to the Energy Performance of Buildings Directive. Uh, it's not a just transition if we simply allow the wealthy to insulate and upgrade their homes. Uh, it's not a just transition if those who are suffering most from energy poverty are not able uh, to upgrade their homes. And it's not a just transition unless we improve this file and make sure that the least well-off are protected. So for me, the social safeguards are of crucial uh, importance. I'm also saying that we need a neighborhood approach to renovations because by, <clears throat> excuse me, by working uh, with um, the surrounding residents, it's possible to target the worst performance buildings uh, and I, I think that will help us get to where we want to be. So the new article that I'm putting in on social safeguards for building renovations, Article 8A, calls on member states to adopt a comprehensive set of social safeguards to prevent and tackle any negative impact that renovations might have on vulnerable households. For instance, we've heard about renovictions uh, in Germany, in some German uh, cities. That's the last thing we want is for people to be evicted from their homes due to rising rents. So we want member states to really keep this on their radar, on their agenda, to ensure that uh, people are protected. And we want them to develop a toolbox for the effective implementation of these safeguards, particularly to protect against renovations. I've also included a new article on integrated district approaches to renovations, that's Article 3A. And this promotes the use of district energy infrastructure and motivates communities to work together on local solutions. An important part, uh, an important element of that, uh, member states ensure local actors take the lead to allow whole communities to benefit from, from renovations. So it can't be just a top-down approach. It has to be from the bottom up and working with communities can achieve this. And I need to mention one-stop shops because making available impartial advice to residents and to communities on the design of renovation plans while also coordinating the district needs of a, a community can help to, to really bring people on board. So I think by considering the unique needs of a community and of the building stock in parallel, communities can really reap benefits such as the renovation of the whole neighborhood, 
uh, such as making it easier to identify and tackle areas where there's high rates of energy poverty. And so I think all of this can help make a, a renovation wave that is socially just. And I think it is crucial if we really want to tackle that climate crisis, we need to make sure we bring people with us and that we first and foremost make sure that the least well-off benefit those who are at particular risk of energy poverty. I'm going to want to keep you with just for a moment because I know you're going to go in at, at 5.30. So just to pick up one of the points that Blas has made about front-loading funding as well. Uh, do you take this point that if we don't front-load the funding that uh, the consequences of not doing so uh, scale up later on? Kieran? Uh, absolutely. I, I think they do. And I think the member states and even municipalities have a crucial role to, to play in all of this because... Uh, we can use the recovery and resilience facility. We can use structural funds. There's all kinds of European Union instruments that can be used to achieve this. But we do need to, to front load uh, the funding for tackling energy poverty. I know from experience in my own city of Dublin, uh, the municipality has done a fantastic retrofit of older persons housing. And we brought that housing up to a passive home standard and the, the improvement in the quality of people's lives has been extraordinary. Of people in their 60s and 70s getting a new lease of life, literally from living in homes that are cosy, uh, that don't have high energy bills, that have a community room where they can meet their neighborhoods, that is a warm and pleasant place to be in winter and summer. So I've seen how it works in practice, and I know we need to roll this out through each of the 27 member states. Kieran, thanks so much. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. I'll let you uh, drop off the call now, and uh, uh, we'll see you again soon. Take care. Now, let's go back to the rest of the, the panel, and uh, I want to hear just 60 seconds, your, your key message uh, for, for each one, uh, and then we'll get into the discussion. Reminder to our audience, uh, both in the room and online, send us your questions now uh, using the Slido, and also uh, use the hashtag EA Debates uh, for social media as well. Our social media team will uh, amplify your message, so you can send your comments or your questions uh, on the Slido, and we'll read those out a little bit as well. So we also have with us uh, Stefan. Stefan, thanks for joining us uh, today. Let's kick off with you for your 60 seconds. So your, your key message for today. Thank you. And can you hear me just to check? Perfectly, yes. Brilliant. Okay, well, thanks for inviting me here today. I, I wanted just to make a few points about the generally the whole um, so renovation wave. I thought that um, as we move forward with these policies, we need to look at where the areas of highest co-benefit are uh, based on the work we did in that um, study uh, for the ECF with the IECP, we, um, one of the conclusions was that shared housing infrastructures such as apartment buildings in southern European countries might be some of them, bring some of the highest co-benefits. Um, another point that came through very clearly is that there needs to be an urgent stop to harmful subsidies, particularly when there is the there's a support for the expansion, the lock-in of fossil gas heating in the residential sector Area-based policies came through quite strongly as well. Um, basically, anywhere where you can target neighborhoods with, with concerted renovation programs, it might uh, do a very, um, you know, very effective job. Um, there are two other points that I want to make based on my general energy poverty work. I would say that uh, we still lack a lot of indicators and information that we might need 
for effective policy, both at, at the EU national, but also regional local level. Uh, indicators for summer related energy poverty, so heat, uh, so excessively hot um, dwellings, transport related energy poverty as well. Um, we also, I think there's been a rollback of expenditure based indicators, and they are important because they show us some of the deeper vulnerabilities rather than just the income-based vulnerabilities, and we can expand on that a little bit more. Um, I think also, gen generally looking at the responses in the short term, we are likely to face, I think, generally across Europe, a very challenging and difficult winter. And for that, there need to be responses, not just in terms of financial aid or retrofit, which takes a little bit longer, but I think we need to think about what crisis mode might look like. And crisis mode also involves um, working closely with local authorities, with cities in particular, to provide things like uh, warm spaces, for example, sufficiently warm spaces, uh, to provide things like collective retrofit solutions, community-based schemes, which links to my area-based uh, point. So yeah, I think, I mean, there's a lot happening. Uh, a lot of it is a little bit uh, fuzzy at the moment in this sphere, but also I think there are also areas where uh, responses need to be stronger and clearer. Thanks for me. Thank you, Stefan. Petros, over to you. 60 seconds, your key message for today. Well, following from Stefan, I think it's not only about the winter, the coming winter and keeping places warm. It's also about keeping places cool. We're heading into 45 degrees into Spain and we should all remember what happened in France a few years ago. It's easier to die of heat than to die of cold. So uh, the, the, the issue of the socially just renovation wave is pretty clear to our, to our mind. Uh, this is a thing that we have the solution. It's about efficiency. It's about getting jobs. And we should be going forward with financing the so-called the lowest uh, first quantile, which is people who are spending most of their money that they don't have and they don't get enough energy for it. So this is a very clear space where we need to invest in the people left behind and to lift them out of energy poverty instead of compensating while perpetuating inequalities. So the one-stop shop that Kieran talked about is clearly for us, the municipalities, the idea that every municipality in Europe should have an energy community which should work towards alleviating energy poverty is a very obvious decision. I think we should learn a lot from the uh, original Bauhaus as we designed the new European Bauhaus, the idea of uh, constructing uh, good housing healthy housing, functional housing for those who can least afford it is the way forward if we want to achieve the Green Deal. Homes is where the, is where the heart strikes and this is where we should, be, uh, rip, uh, um, uh, we should be taking the easy wins and ripping off the most uh, mature technologies that we have. Thank you, Petros. Adela, over to you, 60 seconds. Thank you very much and good afternoon, everyone. Um, so as I represent the, the, the European Commission in this discussion, then uh, um, I would like to, to say that um, the Commission certainly agrees that the uh, renovation of buildings is a structural way how to address energy poverty. And uh, it certainly needs a bit of time. Uh, hence, in the very short term, and here we are talking more about the current energy crisis, uh, income support uh, is what is needed uh, looking ahead of the next winter, as was the case for the past winter. Uh, but the only and very effective way how to help people out of energy poverty is certainly building renovation, but also uh, installation of, of uh, decentralized renewable sources. Um, I think the role of natural gas is certainly changing in the residential sector due to the current crisis. So I think uh, 
um, we will see a much faster phase out of, co of gas boilers and coal boilers from the system to be replaced by renewables. And um, there is a lot of work in the legislative area which is addressing uh, or making the case for addressing energy poverty through energy efficiency and building renovation. I can speak maybe a bit more in detail about that later. And the last comment I would make is that um, there is unprecedented amount of EU financing, which is available for energy efficiency. Um, there is less targeted financing available for energy poverty. But the Social Climate Fund is, is the first ever proposal from the Commission to have targeted financing for energy poverty. But there is certainly a lot of grants at EU level, and it's only up to member states to use these grants. They are certainly available for energy poverty uh, and building renovation projects. Thank you very much. Thank you, Kio. Well, thanks for the opportunity to give uh, some feedback on the study that we are very welcoming of. The findings are very consistent with our own uh, study we, we made last year on heat decarbonization, and it uh, helps fine-tuning the approach for following comps, so it's, uh, it's instrumental, I would say. Um, what it says is that uh, consumers should benefit from public uh, policies and programs that are, that are fit for, for purpose that set the bar to heat decarbonization by uh, subsidizing and incentivizing incentivizing, sorry, um, both uh, the, the envelope, the fabric uh, retrofit to a sufficient level and uh, the, the installation of a heating system that is fit for and suitable for uh, decarbonization. So both should go in hand in hand and should influence the design of the tools, meaning um, mostly the minimum energy performance standards that should result in the uh, implementation of a decarbonization strategy, including, and perhaps first thing first, for following income. So here, uh, I would also like to say uh, it's important that um, member states also support the implementation of one-stop shops because uh, it's where the consumers can get access to full support on all the specific uh, aspects they need support on, uh, technical level, financial level, uh, because it's uh, one, one thing to have uh, solutions available, it's another thing to access them, to understand how to process them. So one-stop shops are very essential. And also at the administrative level, if you want to uh, access a grant, well, you basically need to fill in a form and you need someone to help you with that. So uh, I would say those tools are um, definitely essential to be implemented uh, in combination. Um, Petros, I understand your committee meetings have been brought forward again as well, so you, you've got about 10 minutes with us, I think. Um, so let's focus on some of that. Um, you've, you've heard uh, what Guillaume was saying as well. I just wanted to pick up on, on uh, you know, most people in Brussels don't think about it being too hot and that involving energy costs as well. And I live in Washington. Our energy costs during the summer months is double uh, that during the winter uh, as well. Uh, it, it's pretty heavy and so for those particularly in, in southern Europe they're going to be more deeply affected uh, by that and all the structural elements that, that brings you know how do you think this is sufficiently known by policymakers or are policymakers aware of the, of the, the, the heat element uh, and in terms of summer months or does this need to come more to the fore of the policymaking when it comes to adjust uh, adjust uh, policy? Yes, I absolutely think so. I think it's a good moment to shift the conversation from consumers to citizens. I think it's a good moment to shift the conversation from uh, energy efficiency to adaptation. We know very well what is going to happen in Europe in the next years. 
uh, in the next decades. And uh, we know very much that in the south of Europe, we're going to have extreme heat waves. And we have a very grim uh, example from France in the 2000s, where we had thousands of people who died from heat waves. Um, so I think it's wrong to talk about consumers when we refer to the first quintile, which are not bona fide market participants, which cannot react to price signals because they don't have the money, they don't have access to financial uh, to, to the financial markets. So this is the moment where the state, the the, the 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 government needs to fulfill its basic function, which is to protect lives, uh, and this is what we are be looking at. Uh, so this uh, the, the moment we take the faster we take this decision, the better is going to be for everybody. And I think that such uh, a massive uh, public intervention would uh, raise the general demand, would create better homes, would create a lot more jobs, and will move us all forward towards a cleaner, safer future. Okay, one of the points we've made, and Gim raised this issue about one-stop shop as well. You know, it's great to have these policies in place, but the one-stop shop element, citizens need to know how to fill out the forms. They need to, know, and this, how this comes down to the municipality level. Um, you know, how how do you think this should be applied and and done quickly and done well? Clearly, we've learned some things yeah. from COVID. Well, this is again an issue of semantics. One-stop shop is for consumers. A municipality is a political body where uh, most municipalities have very well-established social welfare uh, units. They know who in the municipality is in need for food, for 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 housing, and now for energy. So I would uh, again stick with the semantics on the citizen side and uh, work with the municipalities. I think that the the proposal put forward in the Repower EU that every municipality comes up with an energy community uh, is, on, is on a very good decision. It should be supported by the recovery and the resilience facilities. This is what the facility was designed for. And uh, I'm sure it could take care of the renovation wave as well. Do you Just on this particular issue, how should this be deployed uh, quickly and effectively? Because some municipalities are going to move at different speeds than others, and the consequences of doing that, as we go back to talking about the finance, you know, the, the, the delay in this not just costs lives, but it, it will impoverish people over the longer term, uh, and that uh, poverty problem will accelerate. So how do, you, how do you benchmark this and compel activity now? Petros? Well, I think that uh, municipalities are much much better equipped to reach uh, the first quantile uh, because they do have a technical they do have the technical competence. They have carried out this effort. So usually, it's on the top level that we get uh, lock in in fossil fuels. Uh, unfortunately, most of the recovery and resilient facilities uh, we have more lock in in fossil fuels than we have uh, energy efficiency and energy poverty attack. Uh, you know. Uh, facing energy poverty. And uh, I, that's why we place special emphasis on the idea of the social climate plans, which should be uh, should offer uh, a platform for uh, a meaningful debate, a meaningful public participation that should ensure public participation. This did not happen in the recovery and resilience facilities. It did not happen good enough in the just transition funds. And this it should be a, a make or break moment for energy democracy uh, going forward. Uh, Adela, this goes to the point of it's not just about 
fixing the climate. It's not just about making sure that the, the, there's social justice. This goes to the heart of our democracy. You, you know, it's not that long ago that we had the gilets jaunes and and all that that brought with it. This is a different stage. And as 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 food prices go up, energy prices go up, the tolerance for uh, instability, the tolerance for for poverty will diminish and quickly as well. Do we have the mechanisms in place uh, to to respond quickly enough uh, at the moment, or are these large bureaucratic processes of finance? which will take too long uh, if, if we, we don't accelerate. Well, I think actually Mr. Kokalis has uh, provided the answers. Yeah. I fully agree with him. Um, in fact, when it comes to um, uh, the really um, vulnerable parts of our population, um, and okay, I agree with those who said that energy poverty cannot be only measured by income. But okay, leaving that aside, if you want to reach to this type of people, one-stop shop is not a place. Um, we have a study by Beuk, a project by Beuk. There is a study by the uh, European Policy Center. They all point to the same. If you want to reach to these type of people, you have to know, you have to use the people they already know. It can be the municipality, it can be the frontline workers who come to their houses, helping them with children or helping them with, with social issues. That's the people they know and the people whom they trust. So if you want to spread messages about energy savings, possible participation in energy savings schemes, this is the people you need to use. The vulnerable will never go to a one-stop shop. That's the first comment. Uh, second comment, um, there are indeed a lot of ideas in the Repower EU communication, in the action plan. Um, one of them is, is the energy communities, which is a concept that we have, a concept that is gradually expanding across the EU. Um, the other one is the rooftop uh, solar strategy, uh, which could be very useful, especially for the cooling situations, because in those parts of the EU where we face the highest heat, it is also the parts of the EU where we have the most sun. So while, of course, energy efficiency fast and we need to renovate the buildings, uh, if, you, if you have a problem with cooling, uh, there is always the roof uh, and there can always be a solar panel. And these can be installed through energy communities. They can be installed with the help of municipalities with public finance. And so in that way, you can have some certainty that while heating is dependent on phasing out gas and having enough, um, you know, heating is a bit more difficult to decarbonize. It takes longer. Whereas for cooling, in a way, we, we have the solutions because the solar panel can power the cooling unit. So that's a very easy fix. Um, so um, I think the solutions are, are there, uh, but they have to be rolled out, of course. So uh, awareness raising is, of course, important. And I would say <laughs> thank you. Uh, just had to drop off, so we thank him for, for his contribution and wish him best of luck in committee. Uh, Guillaume, from the consumer perspective as well, building what uh, Adele has just said, is this, uh, is this what you would recommend, that uh, you, you, the one-stop shop is, is not really a solution, that you've you, you really got to deal with the people at the poorest and the lowest income, the, the more disadvantaged trust and uh, have next to them in their community? It's, it's actually two complementary things. One-stop shops are uh, the, p the places where you will get the support on your uh, retrofit project. But indeed, what Beuk uh, implemented is a, is a step project, uh, training the frontline workers, dealing on a day-to-day -day basis with people on, uh, on low income and with uh, difficulties. So you need to engage with these people to make them uh, realize that they can do something about their situation, that they can get support, and they, that they, get, they have the resources. You have to empower them so that they understand they have the resources to go through a retrofit project. So I would say it's 
complementary because you can't expect frontline workers to have the skills to, to say uh, to people what they should do regarding energy, a, a full-scale uh, technical aspect project. Thank you. Uh, Stefan, you mentioned subsidies. You want to expand on that a little bit? still happening across the, the EU is that as we're moving towards the, the, the transition, there are still lots of residual policies uh, from before where, in fact, the measures that are going contrary to the energy transition are happening. And I think there's also a real danger that, um, you know, in the coming winter, certain, certain um, environmentally harmful policies will be locked in. And I'm talking here about subsidizing things like gas mm, for residential heating. And we've seen lots of evidence of that happening in a lot of places. So more finance for more gas, which I think is the wrong approach. Um, also lots of fuel subsidies, even in some countries, particularly in Eastern Europe, uh, subsidies for buying actual infrastructure that relies on fuel wood. Again, that creates a further lock-in into those kinds of fuels. And I think generally there should be, um, a, if we are moving towards, uh, and I'm, I'm really glad this issue of summertime energy poverty um, was brought up. If we're moving towards um, an sort of integrated system of urban and regional planning uh, that is climate resilient and climate proof, we also need to think about the interactions among these different types of vulnerabilities and what it means for a house to be insulated to withstand different types of weathers. Uh, now, in the, in the work that I've done for a considerable amount of time now, we have seen that summertime energy poverty is not just an issue in the Mediterranean countries, where, of course, some of the biggest vulnerabilities lie, but it's also an issue in the north of Poland. In the north of Germany, you have people who are struggling with heat, excessive heat in the summer. And in fact, sometimes in the Mediterranean countries, there are better adaptations that are being built in. Now, what does this mean when you are undertaking massive housing renovation programs and a lot of these renovation programs are in directly um, open towards, well, they're directly focused on basically improving the airtightness of the housing stock for winter, whereas in fact, we are facing issues in summer more and more. I think that issue needs to be looked at as well in this context. What's the answer to that in a nutshell, Stefan? Back to, I think we're going back to this sort of importance of local and regional authorities and using local, local know-how is absolutely vital. Um, so uh, I think, again, we have regionally specific solutions. So it's not the same if you are in France versus if you are in Bulgaria or Spain. But in all of these instances, um, I, I worry that a lot of funding will come in and uh, there will be then a drive to do certain things. Uh, and sometimes this is a top-down drive and things will be done poorly and fast. So I think in that instance, there is an importance of, um, there's an important role that local and regional authorities can play um, and checks and balances as well and making sure that the, the, the funding that is disbursed, but also the use of that funding is climate resilient. I think maybe I'm going too far in these proposals, but I think we should be moving towards wider bans on fossil fuel based heating uh, at the moment. So that's, I, these are two different issues, by the way, um, on the fossil fuel based heating, 
Um, right now, we only see isolated examples, primarily in, in well-off countries, in well-off cities, but in fact, it needs to be a wider trend um, as well. Thank you, Stefan. Just a follow-up, Blasters. Uh, on that one that Stefan mentioned about the role of the regions, we have seen that the role of the regions is quite important and that's where good examples happen always from regions and cities. Cities even more because cities, the local governments, do have access to this population, they avoid stigmatization and somehow the local policy maker can easier access the energy poor group. Uh, though, I must admit that from what we saw in the operational programs, on the regional operational programs in the EU, if you go horizontally through them, in very few actually we didn't even have anywhere the world mentioned energy poverty. And that's a real pity because in the sense that regional governments who do have the funds and from the operating grants, they, they might in the end of the day think only about public buildings or just spreading the mine energy efficiency broadly but not focusing. Uh, I think that's a quite an issue and somehow this should be uh, streamlined. On, uh, just to go back to what Adele and then to filling in this discussion about the local authorities and the citizens and the role of that. We have seen some good examples uh, from, uh, for instance, in one of these projects called Enpor on the horizon level. And what we see there is that um, if you have the problem of a tenant and a landlord in a, a low-income group or poor energy-poor household in general, uh, it's very hard that both of them will communicate. Okay, and they will find a solution to how much everybody should contribute for the financing. If you don't put them all, both in a table, together with the other actors, in a completely bottom-up work on a local level, then it would not work out. And the problem is also in the, if, we, if you do that, on the contrast, we see that some good initiatives have popped up and they are even reinforcing to the article eight, for example, policies uh, in this project. We've seen that even energy efficiency obligation schemes do work better when you want to, incent to incentivize uh, in, local in local authorities to low-income groups when everybody sits on a table and discuss. The issue there is the following, that most member states, at least in the energy efficiency programs that we've seen so far, uh, incumbent and kind of newer ones, is that when they want to assign a percentage rate in a subsidy rate, for instance, on how much a landlord or a tenant should contribute to uh, invest in energy refurbishment, they never have a study. Very few studies we do have on a national level which says that if you invest 80%, 70%, 90%, it would work out. Normally, just a political debate between those two parties and who has the highest influence gets the best rate. And that's, I think, it's one of the things that we should highlight, that more work needs to be done there on the member state level. Perhaps it's part of the commission to press on that. A couple of questions, and I uh, said the audience is to send more in now as well. One question. Uh, from Victoria Noka, reaching the socially vulnerable clearly requires uh, making links between social and energy policy spheres. How do we reach those member states that have strong social welfare systems in place and do not acknowledge the need uh, to think these uh, spheres, uh, link these spheres together, for example, uh, Sweden or Germany? I think you touched on some of that just now of last as well. Adela. Um, well, uh, in, in the toolbox communication last year, which was our first reaction to the high energy prices, uh, the Commission said that we would set up a coordination group with member states on energy poor and vulnerable, which we have done. And primarily our contact points are the energy ministries. Uh, but uh, it's of course up to member states to involve whoever is uh, co concerned at their national level. And so we have seen actually uh, quite, a, quite a good response from member states. Uh, they are very happy to have this possibility to exchange experiences across the EU. And of course, the topic of who is responsible and how strong social policies and energy policies interact 
in this field is a very much at the core of the discussions of this expert group. So we are trying to, um, to improve the awareness and allow the sharing of experiences also with countries such as Sweden, Germany, and so on, who have this strong social policy focus. Thank you. Guillaume. Uh, on this, um, perhaps we can have a view on the uh, intergovernmental um, best practices exchange, but also uh, facilitate the intra-governmental uh, exchanges. Because as you mentioned, the, um, the energy, uh, the, the ministries in charge of energy are around the table, but perhaps the, the ones um, in charge of housing should be as well, and the ones uh, in charge of social uh, topics. Thank you. Plus, uh, one thing I wanted to just follow up on earlier was uh, you, how difficult is, you, is it for you to measure uh, energy poverty when you have such variations across the European Union? You know, we've, we've talked in principle about north-south and about hot and cold issues as well. You know, is it really possible to get benchmark standards which can be, uh, can be uh, deployed effectively and, and given uh, this a sufficient resource to municipalities to, to measure? Yeah, I think that's a fair point, and Stefan might have more views. You've given his role in the EU Energy Poverty Observatory sure. in the past. Uh, it's a very difficult part to measure and set some benchmarks and some uniform standards. That's what we have seen in practice. It would be ideal to be living in an ideal world that we have 10 indicators and we can all measure horizontally across member states, but that's not the case. Each member state has its own characteristics and its own population. The thing is that depending on where we want to aim at, we have to use the correct indicator. That's what policies are for and that's why we need these indicators for. So if you want to target at specific ownership issues, like when you have landlord-tenant uh, dilemmas, or when you have high la landlords uh, occupancies from low-income groups, or vice versa, we should have this type, for instance, of indicators and address the policies uh, likewise. If we speak about income issues, then we need to go to the income indicators, try to see income-related, let's say, indicators, and try to see what type of income support we should provide, and, and et cetera, et cetera. When it goes to efficiency indicators, like we showed you the graph with the EU values for the insulation, that's what we have to take then as indicator and see which countries are lagging behind and how much insulation practically, or funds for insulation should be given there, rather than thinking it's a very poor country, let's just give funds for social protection, but the insulation is also very low. So that's where we have to make the choice and see what indicator to use and address which policy. Stefan, anything to add to that? Is it perfectly? The only thing I only add, one thing is that energy poverty is political and we have to acknowledge that it's subject to a political choice as to what you think, who you think is vulnerable and deserving of support. And that is always subject to political decisions because it's such a multi-dimensional phenomenon. We know, generally speaking, wherever we've seen it, that it extends beyond income. So you can define that everyone who is socially at risk or vulnerable by means of a low income is energy poor, but then there is a wider group of households that tends to be also affected. And that, and who is in that group then becomes um, a matter of decision uh, by a certain national authority deciding whether, first of all, you go beyond that group, which countries with a strong social system might not want to do so and might want to say just everyone who's income poor can also be considered energy poor or you could then extend it to energy infrastructure energy efficiency health the th all the things that Vlas has mentioned but that becomes a political choice however the key point and i think this cannot cannot be stressed more that you just have to have a decide what your benchmark is going to be and you have to follow that benchmark i think just to add to that sometimes when you make these decisions, when you decide these on these benchmarks, uh, it's not easy to show progress. 
um, particularly when they are linked to structural things like income. Um, and we, we saw this, we've seen this in a number of cases in countries where they have tied the definition, not so much to the fluctuation in prices, but income inequalities, then it looks like energy poverty is not moving. But still, you can, um, even within that framework, you can show certain improvements, particularly if you work down to the local level. Thank you. Um, it, it struck me particularly, and just come back to what Kieran said earlier as well, that you know, we shouldn't be funding uh, rich households as well in the interest of, of fairness. But uh, one thing you, you seem to show in the, the, the study was that uh, the poor households, while at times their energy consumption can be lower because they simply can't afford more, that also there's a disproportionate cost to them as well because you know they, they, they don't have their homes insulated well enough, they don't have the, the more uh, current uh, uh, status of, of boilers, for example, and so they're paying above the odds anyway. Bless us. Exactly. That's what we saw, that uh, the energy consumption for the low-income households can be relatively, let's say, higher for the basic needs because, indeed, it's the conditions you mentioned. That's why we believed and what we saw is that the funds should prioritize to these groups because these are the ones mostly need and these are the ones who would somehow need to have this change and structural change just by setting prices, just by setting regulations or only information. Of course, information works to a great extent, but it's not enough. So if you don't really invest structurally to resolve the problem, it would not work. And structurally, I would, if we put a hierarchy between the one and the two, it would be energy efficiency upgrades, electrification or clean sources, cheap clean sources of energy, and uh, then accompanied somehow by the ETS2 with the Social Climate Fund. But I think the first two would even make much more sense in the end of the day and if they are really front-loaded in 2025-2030, I would even put it. Keep sending in your questions. Uh, a comment here from uh, George Florin uh, Staku. Uh, he's, uh, he puts this to all the panelists, but I'm just going to read the remark. Uh, could the nationalization of the fossil fuel market in the EU uh, member states be a solution that could stop the current perfect storm that is devastating the world markets? I don't know if it's going to get a lot of traction here, but uh, interesting remark. Thank you for that, George. Um, uh, Takis uh, Griogo uh, from Greenpeace Greece says, many argue that member states should use their tax incentives financing even up to 100 percent of all costs for uh, for all as per the example of Italy apart from the climate and energy urgency it will allow other funds for example either other EU funds to exclusively focus on funding initial costs for poor households the panel's opinion Adela um, well that's a question whether member states can afford such wide-ranging schemes as the Italian one uh, is um, it's an it's a extremely generous scheme from a country that doesn't have fiscal reserves, so I'm not sure we can promote it that much. Um, but I would like to maybe... Um, yeah, okay, I'll stop here. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I was afraid to go that far. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Guillaume? I would say uh, for the lowest income, it makes sense to strike uh, 100%, but then you also have a, a broad scope of uh, needs from the different households profile. So it's also very important to uh, think of uh, financial instruments that are uh, lacking at the moment. And mostly also from the support of municipalities, I'm thinking of um, guarantee funds, loan loss reserves, sorry, it's a bit of technical terms, but um, it, uh, what I mean is uh, you have to be combine grants and uh, with the financial tools that uh, act as stepping stones. For example, if you can cover 80%, 
uh, of the costs via grants, you still need to address the 20 per remaining percent. So you need financial instruments uh, well designed and engaging with, uh, with consumers. The modeling in this in terms of decision making and, and integration of, to this approach from low income households as well. And you, do we have good evidence that the, the behavior moves a certain way with certain incentives or is this us sitting here in the Brussels bubble going, we think that's a good idea, Guillaume? Uh, regarding the, the behavior, what, what we are calling for is the integration of an engagement strategy. It's not enough to communicate, it's not enough to provide the information. You have to think of all the, the tricks that can make people tick. And it, it, it really requires thinking of the design of your programs to integrate that dimension. And what is uh, actually true for consumers, uh, households, is also true for uh, local authorities when you want them to uh, access technical assistance, for example. It's not because the, the technical assistance exists that uh, the, the local authorities apply for it or uh, that member states would engage with it uh, either. So you need to think of how to, to engage all the different stakeholders. Plus, just follow up, go ahead. That one. Um, we tried to simulate actually one example whether energy communities in reality would be an applicable instrument for the low-income groups. And um, I must admit that it's not the easiest one uh, when it comes to the first income quantile because energy communities need some percentage participation. We start from the basic one. Likewise, uh, and it's already kind of a problematic on who would do that. Uh, if you're in a middle income, for sure it can work easier, but for the low income groups, we already have the first point. The second one is that um, uh, I would uh, here um, agree with, um, uh, with our colleagues from Berg that uh, indeed, if you have innovative financing schemes, it could work out. But frankly speaking, energy performance contracting is not a solution for that. It doesn't work out. I don't know why it's mentioned in several policy papers, but for sure, for low-income groups, it will never work out. We know unless you've got a fantastic aggregation with a very nice social housing market that has it, but we don't have that. So I would say let's stick to the public funds, try to allocate the reserves for the specific low-income groups. We see the numbers. Okay, they're not, it's about 8 to 10% of the population. If we start resolving the problem on that level, then already we have kind of worked quite a lot in each country. We have solved a various important issues in the transition, okay, uh, rather than thinking of super innovative models. Super innovative models are very good, uh, financing models, I mean, are very good for general uh, local planning and local energy projects, like for public lighting, for uh, refurbishment of public buildings. Yes, this can work because there is no financial risk behind the citizens. But for the low-income groups, as somebody needs to pay at the end of the day, I doubt if the private investor will be the ideal party for that. Thank you. Regarding um, the question of uh, tackling the split incentives, regarding the question of uh, the difficulty to uh, access ownership for a lot of us uh, because you don't have enough fund, because the market is just through the roof, uh, what we are uh, suggesting is to support the implementation, well, to support the uh, implementation of um, operational framework for housing cooperatives, because then you you tackle the question of the split incentives between between tenants and landlords, because you have none of them. It's cooperators who access the cooperative for housing, and also uh, you can mutualize all the efforts for the retrofit for the whole uh, pool of housing. So we see uh, quite a lot of uh, questions we um, tackled here the access to housing and the leverage effect uh, through the cooperative itself. Dada. If I may as well. Sure. Um, 
on, on the topic um, how to allow the energy poor, for example, to join energy communities. I think a good um, similarity would be communal gardens. You know, people who don't have their own gardens, they maybe live in, in residential housing, and, but in the cities more and more they have access to their own gardens. How? That the municipality intermediates, right? The municipality gives a plot of land available and distributes it based on income, for example. And something similar can be done with energy communities. So you can either have an actor such as municipality that is part of the energy community and finances the access to the less well-off people, or you can have a mixture of participants. Some of them um, pay more than they would have normally paid to enter the energy community and in that way they finance access of those who cannot access energy community. So it, it, it can be done. Okay, thank you. Just to a question which actually I think builds a little on, on what Guillaume was saying uh, from Turk Weyland. He says, regarding the IECP study, has it been uh, considered that the true cost of renovating the housing stock might be underestimated due to insufficient supply of skilled labour in relevant fields. Um, and this is even before, I know you couldn't include the current energy cost as well. So especially once uh, all of Europe gets busy at the very same time. So basic supply and demand, we all got to do this and we don't have enough people to do it. One of the main problems, and that's what we heard also from the stakeholder group, uh, where there was all these people, also from the heat pump manufacturers, and etc. And um, uh, indeed, this is one of the issues. We all know that there is a lack of, sub of skill supply. Nevertheless, we have to consider it as the, we speak about the long-term planning, short-term solution, but with a view of a long-term planning. The study has a horizon of 2050. So we assume that economies of scale should start working on. People should see the investment opportunity. Okay, energy efficiency is a business. We should go for it and perhaps create more jobs. Don't forget that um, the part of the study which is the most important is not so much the calculations and all these numbers. It's the role of the multiple benefits of energy efficiency. And the multiple benefits, one of the main part is employment. Okay, next to the health and all this stuff we know. Uh, employment has a multiplying effect in the local communities and the countries. So, uh, indeed, now we do have the skill of labor. We, we have the lack of uh, labor, that we all know. But given if we take into account and we give the correct signal that, okay, that's the way forward we go, so please try to orientate your jobs around this market, then for sure we'll have any economies of scale and more people working on that. It's not like we've solved unemployment in Europe yet. Guillaume, you want to follow <laughs> up on this? Yes, just to, to say we are also calling as a consumer organization for way more people to be trained and accredited regarding all the skills we need, but also uh, regarding the one-stop shop. What we are calling for is not only a one-stop shop for consumers, but also local one-stop shop for uh, accredited installers to get uh, services as well that will mirror what the consumers can access. So uh, did I mention the administrative uh, burden for a grant? That would be the same thing for a training, for example. So you could save a lot of time to uh, installers if you want to training, if you fill in the form for them. So that's an example of how one-stop shops could be useful for uh, installers as well. Is there anything to add to that? Maybe no. just I would say that these topics are not new. Sure. They've been on the table for at least 20 years. Well, but we didn't pay enough attention because energy prices were low. Now energy prices have skyrocketed overnight, which is absolute shock for the economy and everyone. But finally, maybe everyone is a people, you know, we always, before we were always saying we have 10% of consumers who cannot pay energy bill. And then we have 90% of consumers who pay very easily and they are not interested in any uh, changes. Now 100% of consumers are interested in changes. So maybe this will finally uh, trigger a change 
because otherwise we will be talking again in 10 years' time about the same topics. <laughs> okay, thank you. Um, I think it's, it's fair to say there are a few people who pointed out this is coming uh, in terms of Russia's ability to put a stranglehold on our energy supply. Um, so another question here as well, in terms of affordable renewable fuels are essential. This is from Leo Vosner from uh, Liquid Gas Europe. Affordable renewable fuels are essential to guaranteeing heating in households and rural communities. Local solutions to local problems may prefer to use more renewable fuels for heating. Uh, why should this be this option be taken away from them? We've got a couple of questions related to that kind of thing. Um, Vlasis, anything to offer on that? Uh, frankly speaking, I think. In a second as well. Go ahead. Yeah, frankly speaking, I think it should not be. Uh, I mean, it should be part on the table, and indeed, the clean fossil, the clean fuels, um, should be also part in the whole debate. Um, from the point where we can secure that we do have them, because that's where we start. Yeah. We have them or not? If we have them, yes, then let's put them in the market. Do we have complete, uh, nice heating lows, uh, clear and consistent heating lows for heating networks like the start with the Netherlands? All this process. Then yes, let's just bring biofuels, bio, you know, all these clean fuels, and they should be there. But um, I, we have to be sure that the supply is there for them as well, that the infrastructure is there for them as well, and that they are not a scapegoat for bringing in again more natural gas in case we don't have enough supply of them. Okay, Stefan and then Guillaume. Stefan. Yeah, I agree with that. There's not much to add. I think also part of the problems with a lot of these um, alternative fuels is there isn't really very good definitions of what they are at the EU level. Uh, and um, I mean, with the taxonomy, things are starting to be clearer, but not entirely. And in a, in a sense, um, I think even there is a lot of uncertainty even for the manufacturers because there's a whole range, particularly in the biomass sector, of things that can be done. Um, and then what that also means is things like, you know, what, what are the impacts on feedstocks, on agriculture? Uh, you know, there's all, all these different sort of elements that, that come into the equation on forestry. Um, and so, yeah, we're, we're starting to go into non-energy almost areas here. Um, but I think um, I agree with Vlasis, they have to be part of the solution. It's just how they're defined, what, you know, there's, a, there's more work to be done there at the European level and then translated into different types of policies beyond energy. Thank you. Adela, you... We have this crisis, some saw coming, uh, the, the, the moment in which it came was, was still a shock. Uh, this is a good moment for communication as well, everybody's aware of it. Uh, this moment will probably settle sometime in the next year or, or, or a couple of years, hopefully, and it'll probably go off the border again then, literally. Uh, so how do we communicate effectively now to incentivize people to act now and not delay this 90% that you mentioned? Um, well, we will see what happens uh, with the energy prices. Also, one thing to keep in mind is that the impact of the headline energy prices we see on the wholesale market on consumers is delayed. So in some countries, the consumers feel the pain already because they have more short-term contracts or they, are even linked, they have contracts linked to the spot market. But then there are many countries, such as Germany, even Czech Republic, where I come from, people are used to have more long-term contracts and it means that these consumers, unless they change contract for some reason, will maybe feel the pain in one or two years. So this uh, will have, uh, you know, the impact on consumers will keep coming for a while. But of course, it gives a unique opportunity to these citizens to prepare. Because if I know that my bill will expire in two years time, I have a lot of time to prepare. 
Whereas if my bill changes every three months, like happens in Belgium, I don't have the time to prepare, right? So the situation of consumers is different. Um, but I think this, this crisis is not like in 2009, where it was a question of few months. We are already in this for almost a year. And this will continue. I mean, the, the coming winter will be difficult for everyone. And so I think um, the shock we are going through will have a more lasting impact. And I hope, um, and because of, of course, you know, before people who were interested in renovation of buildings very often came from the environmental reasons. And you have, but now you have even people who maybe don't agree with climate change, who, who, who see that, that there is no security of supply in fossil fuels. And uh, by changing supply routes, it works temporarily, but we cannot rely on, on fossil fuels, right? So I think uh, everyone sees that we absolutely need to do something finally. So hopefully this will have more lasting impact. Yeah, you know, one of the benefits of being in Brussels for a couple of weeks after been in Washington for so long is that you get to talk with lots, lots of Uber drivers who are the pulse of the people. And every Uber driver has been telling me that their pocket is hurting, their the fuel prices are up, the water costs are up, their gas prices for gas, their petrol prices are up. Speaking American, the this and they said they can't take it much more. It's really hurting. Um, but I didn't hear anybody say anything about a solution that they could apply themselves, like energy efficiency at home, nothing mentioned that. You know, are we missing something here in, in the public dialogue, Guillaume? I would say, uh, again, it's not only a question of uh, information and communication, it's also uh, getting to where people are and engage with them. Uh, as mentioned earlier, the STEP project was meant to train the social workers. Perhaps we should do that with um, anyone f uh, having a face-to-face -face interaction with, uh, with consumers, for example, in the banks. But we we started off not quite knowing what we were doing, and then it was, did you get your booster? And everybody would check if you had your booster. You know, we we learned the language, and over a, a, a series of months, you know, the process became apparent to everybody. And then it was, you know, are you going on holiday? What are the requirements when you get to that country, this country? We learned the process. When are we going to learn the process about energy efficiency and for consumers, Guillaume? Well, once consumers get access to easy funding, easy uh, access to, to trained and accredited and trustworthy uh, installers, and also once consumers will know that they, if there is in any case a liability, because it can happen, they will know to whom they should go to get this fixed, and that should be the one-stop shops. In an energy efficiency store beside the COVID testing glasses, does that work? <laughs> that would be fantastic. Now, <laughs> for, uh, uh, one of the things I would like to add here is that next to the consumers, of course, aspects, it all has to come back to the member states. The Commission has very nice ideas. Indeed, in the documents of the EED, of the new recast of the EED, the proposals for the phasing out of the boiler, for reducing of financing of uh, the new boilers, etc., which is very nice and really give a nice signal. Um, Article 3 is a key. Article 3 is about this energy efficiency first, and I do stick to that because uh, we carried out a study, for example, we're carrying out a study now for Greenpeace in Greece, okay, about if they um, want to uh, use new funds for new gas infrastructure or invest in energy efficiency and all the other parts for the low-income groups. And simply, if you take the social cost-benefit analysis, as the first, uh, first principle says, it doesn't fit. You cannot really go into fossil fuels. It doesn't make any sense. But, okay, we do that as an organization for one NGO. This should be done more on a structural level on the member states. So member states should really get kind of a mandate to demonstrate that their decisions from now on and the policies that they've been 
that are planning to implement are really adhering to these rules and to this energy efficiency first and not leave it somewhere random on a theoretical basis. Yes, that energy efficiency is a selling point. It works because we have elections and we might sell it again. But I think this is quite important just to demonstrate and be true and in reality show numbers. Whether, okay, if I invest to you in that part and if I send you or if I open the subsidy program, you will win this part, this part with the multiple benefits doubling or tripling your savings and your extra cost savings and all the uh, positive effects, but not hide it under the carpet. Because so far I have the feeling that the very few countries are really into this field of carrying out this social cost benefit analysis in a uh, you know, real way and showing the, the real outcomes to the uh, citizens. Okay, Stefan, uh, you know, this took a market approach to this uh, as well from a slightly different perspective. You know, if I was coming back to Brussels and looking for an apartment, I'm not going somewhere where the energy efficiency uh, is poor. You know, I'm going to look for energy efficient apartments or houses. Uh, where uh, and so, it, are we at a moment where uh, landlords and and, and those involved in construction of, of houses and offices should be concerned that consumers are now going to become more discerning because they don't want to pay over the month after month because of uh, poor energy efficiency in the building. Stefan? Yes, I agree. I think that's definitely happening. I, I don't, I've not seen any research to see what the impacts of, of uh, energy efficiency labeling is on, um, on, on what we might call consumer citizen choices. And in fact, previous research showed that it, it wasn't as important as many thought. I think this is maybe a moment to mention uh, a project that uh, Vlasis and I are involved in with colleagues called NPOR. Um, we, we were particularly concerned about instances where uh, rents and bills are bundled together for the private rented sector in particular. And th these are the sort of um, situations that I think need to um, be eradicated if, if at all possible, because they are the kinds of situations where you cannot indeed that price signal from energy efficiency or for prices cannot be seen because the the um the the rent is bundled with with the with the bills and there are still very many europeans who are on such contracts in the private rented sector um so i, I think that's a clear win-win if you if we can at least um, make sure that everyone knows you know energy literacy basically is something that everyone has access to and is able uh, to to see that uh, information. I mean, this goes, I guess, also along the work that uh, Beuk are doing. Okay, thank you. Just what about poli uh, political uh, literacy as well when it comes to this, Stefan? You know, we saw what happened in Australia. Uh, we got a fundamental shift in, in government as well, largely related to, to climate issues. Um, you know, these, these consumer pricing issues um, are right at the front of, of political awareness um, without, from what I can see, serious uh, attempts to, to address them, uh, at least from the communications perspective in a way which can be understood. You know, are we going to see a, a, a sea change in awareness as a consequence of politicians being put under pressure to address this in a way which can be understood? Is, is this part of the, the jigsaw that's missing at the moment, Stefan? I, I am concerned about what this means for the political spectrum um, because uh, what we have seen is quite the opposite. Uh, we saw when prices became an issue, uh, they've kind of become an, a populist issue where there's been pressure to lower them. Um, with short-term measures, um, we had the instance where Bulgarian government uh, about 10 years ago fell because of high energy prices. And the Gilets jaunes movement is also in many ways the same. It is about a particular type of, uh, of pricing scheme. So I am, I am worried that, um, in fact, 
we're not really at the stage where there is enough pressure um, for um, you know for people to um, uh, for governments from people to see that that uh, there is this sort of they need to be moving in that direction. The um, I think where the win is is through the green jobs argument, um, and that's possibly the only space where politicians can bring in and, and policy discourses can bring in benefits to people because otherwise um, it always just sticking plasters for high energy prices. And it tends to be that a lot of the subsidies then go to things people who are in the middle class, to, to motorists and so on and so forth. So, um, I mean, this, is, this goes into politics and this again depends on the particular circumstances of each member state. But there's a real danger of climate and energy populism right now going in the completely in the wrong direction from a sustainability and equity point of view. Just the audience, you have the last couple of minutes to send in a question to for the panel. Uh, Adela, you know, the political sensitivity as well, you know, the commission is not a, a blind to this, not oblivious to, to uh, what, what's going on. Yeah, can, can we turn this great ship quickly enough to, to uh, meet the needs of consumers and to, to adjust to uh, the, the reality of this entirely in the member states' hands right now? Um. Well, I think it's, a, it's a certainly a, a joint exercise for the different uh, policy or political levels, not just member states, EU, region, cities, and so on. But I think you, are, you have a point, uh, Brian, because I think we are not very good at communicating on this topic. And by, you know, I'm responsible for consumers, and I really don't understand how is it possible that people can choose a phone, they can choose a plan for their mobile phone among a million of options, which I don't understand at all, and they cannot choose a contract uh, on energy. And, and there is a problem. We really have a problem in energy in Europe. We are much more energy efficient than the US, so the consumption levels are much lower, but still, uh, we have a huge problem with supply, we need to be energy efficient, uh, we need to decarbonize, and we just can't communicate these things. Let's go to someone who may know something about consumers. Guillaume, <laughs> what's the, why are we not communicating effectively on this? Well, perhaps because the, the whole context is not uh, fit for purpose. We talk about fit for fit, fit, fi 55. Uh, you need to change all uh, the, the, the whole way the different stakeholders are involved. Talking about the public uh, authorities, what we need is um, to, to train them, to make them um, implement, understand which design they should implement and Im implement it. I was talking about technical assistance earlier. There are bottlenecks. We need municipalities to act and they are not trained. They are not necessarily uh, equipped with all the workforce, so they need to be provided with the technical assistance at scale, and then indir indir indirectly it can positively impact the consumers. From Martin Menner, the Centre of European Policy. Uh, a just transition does not stop at the second uh, quintile, and the middle class uh, needs price signals. Why is there opposition, maybe you want to take this, uh, and why is there opposition to an e ETS2 for all? And why not use a big part of ETS2 revenues for lump sum transfers and the rest to renovate houses of the energy poor? Okay. Fine. Uh, I think the opposition is not on the ETS2 per se. The opposition is that if you have ETS2 only for the low-income groups, and that's what we examined, we didn't examine for the entire society, and what we found, for the low-income groups, it would not work out because of the structural reasons we said. They cannot cover it on their own. 
Uh, ETS2 is a fantastic instrument. It has great potential from the points being accompanied with a uh, social climate fund and with the lump sum transfers to the entire society, it could work out. But now here we've got a problem that we might have a second and third income quantile progressing in energy efficiency and leaving one behind, the one who will not pay. And that's our great fear. That's why we said that we have to accompany this instrument with MEPS, with all the other stuff we have discussed uh, today. Sure. Uh, because it, this is, I mean, the ETS2 is for everyone and it is an excellent instrument to redistribute finance. And with the Social Climate Fund, we would for the first time ever have a dedicated instrument to tackle energy poverty through building renovation and uh, where needed a direct income support. But the ETS, I mean, the Social Climate Fund would again finance energy efficiency improvements for this type of people. And so uh, I just don't see why it would not be useful to have it. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Stefan, anything to add on this? No, not really. Okay. You could have padded that out a little bit, but that's all right. Um, Guillaume, anything to add on this particular question? Well, on the ETS2, I, I would say uh, regarding the funding of the Social Climate Fund, we could also look at how to tap into ETS1. And uh, also we need to keep in mind that um, the price elasticity regarding energy is very low. It's not because you have high, high energy prices, but people will invest in uh, uh, decarbonizing the, the heating system and invest in a heat pump because for the moment they can't. Uh, so what we need to get right is this uh, tax system because going back to the Gilets Jaunes, uh, what happened is not that people were uh, opposing uh, a green tax system. They were opposing tax in, uh, just in fairness because it was unfair to add, it's not the few cents on diesel that trigger everything, is that you had on that side uh, two cents on diesel per liter and on the other side a fiscal and tax uh, niche that were just uh, uh, blown up. You think people are angry about uh, fuel and crisis, uh, fuel prices rising here, try Texas. It's uh, a whole different story. Uh, okay, you want to follow up on that? On that, yeah. It was, you mentioned the word elasticity, and it's a very fine word here. Uh, that's a, the heart of the problem. What we found out in the study when we carried out is that um, when you speak about the first income quantile, at least in the countries that we worked on, uh, there were almost no studies on the behavior of the low-income quantile groups. So studies meaning showing how they respond to price changes. So what we do is that most of the studies refer, or even the models that we normally use, they all refer to an average elasticity, which is somehow the same for the entire population. But we know that in reality, it's not the case. When you have the choice to pay electricity or eat, you know, it's not the same elasticity with another one, with an average group. So I think here, more work needs to be done. And I, I think that's kind of for the research community, of course, and for the countries to understand exactly how, the behavior, how this behavior changes for this specific group. This will determine what subsidy to give what tax incentive to give? This will be kind of the determinant in uh, yeah. Electricity or eat as a, a yeah. means to sharpen minds in this. Okay, it's time uh, for us to wrap up. Just before we do, Georgina Turner says, great discussion. Thank you, Georgina. Uh, Mike Parr says, UK government is uh, going to reform the electricity market. They will split into fossils, uh, fossil and renewable parts. I wish they would do the same with the government. Uh, wonder when the EU will do the same. wish they would do that with the government as well. Um, Stefan, uh, let's finish off your soundbite. 30 seconds for your wrap-up now. Um, I mean, I think uh, it's. Uh, I think what's happening generally is we are at a turning point right now uh, in the whole sphere of energy poverty and just transition. Some radical changes are happening. 
and it's an opportune moment. Um, the the design of the Social Climate Fund is absolutely vital, what it includes, but also uh, we need to make sure that everyone is on board from cities to regions uh, to national governments and in understanding the complex uh, dimensions of energy poverty and energy justice. Thank you. Adela. Um, so maybe I just say that, uh, of course, high energy prices are bringing this topic to the forefront. And uh, it's clear that we cannot uh, subsidize um, uh, people energy bills on a long term. So uh, especially for the energy poor and vulnerable, we absolutely uh, need to renovate uh, buildings that include social housing. So it can be done in, in big bulks by municipalities. And uh, the EU framework is very, uh, very favorable to this. Uh, the EU finance is there as well. So this is really an opportunity not to be wasted by member states and regional local authorities. Thank you. Thank you, Guillaume. I, I agree with Adela. Um, uh, there, there is a necessity to keep on uh, helping people with lump sum uh, at the moment, but we have to keep in mind at the mid-term uh, level that we need uh, support for retrofitting and that means uh, having easy access to financing uh, easy access to uh, one-stop shops all the ingredients are there we need to get the design right so the numbers i would say are clear we've seen that what works what not and it's important to put them into practice uh, persuading people about energy efficiency and especially the low-income groups and this is done by two ways first of all on a bottom-up way engage them together with the landlords tenants and all the local authorities as we said show them the multiple benefits show them why they win and the tenant and the landlord will win from these investments and on a top-down level of course is that we need more integration of the various plans we have the national energy national energy poverty plans the NECPs, the various strategies and all these plans somehow all this should be integrated in a climate plan and that's why we have the climate laws of course and they should be harmonized we don't have that yet but we are close to that thank you thanks to our panel here in the studio of lazis uh, guillaume adela online we're still with us today is uh, stefan and our thanks to meps kieran cuff and petros kokalis as well who joined us earlier today you can see them all unless you can see through that glass behind me uh, but we also have from the production team today zoran malta wilson bonya and uh, the organizers tamara and agat uh, who uh, are extremely diligent in this today all their hard work uh, should be appreciated and our uh, thanks to iecp uh, for uh, supporting uh, this super important uh, discussion today and we need to hear more about this thanks to our audience here in the studio and online for joining us uh, today you continue uh, with hashtag ea debates and our social media team uh, will uh, retweet and respond to you there uh, stay tuned for more events coming up uh, on your active as well uh, i wish you a good evening a sunny evening in brussels and that's all from me brian mcguire thank you <laughs>